friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Later on in the hour, we'll be talking to the famous Dr. Scott Hahn. He has a new book out called The Decline and Fall of Sacred Scripture, How the Bible Became a Secular Book. But before that, we invited the Vice President of the Religious Freedom Institute, a good friend of ours, Eric Patterson, to come and talk to us about what's going on in Afghanistan from the religious freedom perspective. Welcome back to the show, Eric. Thank you, Gracie. Thanks for having me. Eric, so all these uh, terrible developments in Afghanistan just happened um, in the last few days. I wanted to talk to you about something that maybe we're not going to be hearing a lot about uh, right now because uh, of all the terrible things that are happening in, in Afghanistan, that the top of the list of most people's concerns is not religious freedom or what's happening on the religious front. But I know it's your concern at RFI and it's our concern at the Catholic Association. And of course, our listeners are very thoughtful when it comes to religious issues so that we could talk about this because Afghanistan is a calamity, what's going on there, but we don't want to forget about this dimension. Well, thank you for having me today. And uh, it's a pleasure to be with the Catholic Association. And I will say that you're exactly right, that it's a dire time for uh, religious minorities, but that's not something new in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, Afghanistan has never been good on these issues. And despite hundreds of thousands of outsiders from around the world, mainly from the West on the ground there, a trillion dollars spent trying to stabilize and modernize the country. The simple fact of the matter is, is Afghanistan is always on the top five list of religious freedom violators by the U.S. government and by others. It is a place where it is very dangerous to convert to Christianity or to be a part of a religious minority. Have people in the last uh, couple decades since the United States has been embroiled there, have people lived openly as Christians in Afghanistan? So foreigners have been able to publicly act as Christians in Afghanistan, but all the way back to the early 2000s, all the way through 2021. It is illegal to convert. The laws are draconian for these types of things. The Particularly at the local level, if an Afghan citizen were to publicly share Christianity, that would be considered a violation of the law. They could be imprisoned and all, all sorts of terrible things happen to them. If someone were to choose to convert to Christianity or another faith other than Islam, they could be imprisoned, likely tortured, likely receive the death penalty. It is a a terrible situation in Afghanistan with the Taliban coming, it will only get worse. Everything you're telling me is happening, was happening under the relatively benign government that's being replaced by a brutal Islamist new regime. That is correct. And to give you just a sense, the Indian government has given an open visa for any Hindus and Sikhs, and there's only about 2,000 left in Afghanistan, to repatriate formally to India and and they are willing to move them as quickly as possible. The last Jew, the the last Jew that we know of, who is an indigenous Afghan, uh, shuttered the synagogue in Kabul in June and left for Israel. So these other religious minorities are packing up and leaving because they see no future for themselves. Okay, so religious minorities, we mentioned Christians, Jews, one single Jew. That's amazing to me that there was one last Jew. And you mentioned the Hindus. What other religious minorities might exist in Afghanistan? Well, the main religious minority in Afghanistan are Shia Muslims, mm -hmm. and the majority of them are actually one of the principal ethnic groups in Afghanistan, a minority, uh, but large group called the Hazaras. And many people became familiar with them through movies like Kite Runner and things like that. It's estimated they make up 10 to 15 percent of the population. The Taliban was very aggressive 
towards them as seeing the Shias as apostates back in the 1990s. And that's the group, that's the group that will, if we're going to see kind of widespread persecution, there's millions of Hazara, they will be the ones that take it on the chin first and foremost, because the Taliban loathes them. So what we are mostly going to be seeing if we see religious violence is Muslim on Muslim violence, is that so? That's so. And unfortunately, I mean, this is a story across the the Muslim world. The greatest threat to Muslims is often violent Islamist Muslims. In northern Nigeria, that's the case. In parts of the Middle East, that's the case. In Central Asia, Afghanistan and Pakistan, groups like the Taliban, groups like Al-Qaeda, groups, uh, other terrorist groups, they turn on their own neighbors first. And of course, much smaller communities like the tiny Christian minority, of course, they're under threat as well. Now, I don't know if you are an Islam expert. Maybe you you are, (laughs) or practically are. I get very confused about all the different sects. What separates um, the beliefs of the Taliban from their other Muslim neighbors? What makes them so inimical to each other? In, in the ideology, I mean. Let me say something first about kind of the one big division within Islam, and then second, say something very specifically about the Taliban. As many people know, there's a one large division and lots of smaller divisions within Islam. The majority of the world's Muslims are Sunni. About 90% of the world's Muslims are Sunni. And that's true, the majority in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, as well as in places like Indonesia. And then there's a a minority, about 10 to 12 percent of the global Muslim community are Shia. It's a change in leadership that goes all the way back to the first century of Islam, more than a millennium ago. The Shia can be found around the world, but of course, the main area of the Shia is in Iran. And then there's pockets of Shia in neighboring communities in that part of the world. So some of the tension that we see, for instance, in the Persian Gulf, between Saudi Arabia and Iran is because Saudi Arabia is the home of Sunni Islam and Iran is the home of Shia Islam. And these divisions go way back. Iraq was fractured because a part of its population was Sunni and a part of it was Shia, hence the religious warfare there. Now, the Taliban in specific is a homegrown group. And the Taliban was a response to all of the corruption and lawlessness that was going on in Afghanistan in the 1990s. And they imposed, we can talk more about the roots if you like, but what they did was they imposed a draconian form of law and order based on their understanding of the early centuries of Islam. They imposed it on their neighbors to fight the corruption, the violence and things that was a part of Afghan society in the 1990s. So these are uh, deep fractures that go back many hundreds of years. And can you tell me more or less, or in a very basic way, what do they disagree on? Well, it's a, the, that, that fundamental difference had to do with the succession after the Prophet Muhammad. And should that succession be essentially an election, uh, a consensual decision about who the next leaders would be? This was, this was a shortly after Muhammad's death, or should that succession be through the lineage of the Prophet Muhammad, who would be the leaders in Islam? And essentially, there was a a fracture over that. It was a leadership decision. But over the years, there have been, you give it a thousand years, and so, and you you do get changes, some theological differences that are significant between the two. But that also gets tied up in region and different ethnicities, different parts of the world and stuff. But that, it, it goes back to a leadership crisis shortly after the death of Muhammad. So the Taliban are famous for their for their for the brutal way that they adhere and make others adhere to this very strict uh, form of Islam. Um, are they are they the strictest or most or most brutal sect um, of those we know? The Taliban was brutal and they've shown themselves to be tenacious fighters uh, as well they are yes they have been among the more brutal groups i'd say that certainly there's an entire another step with a group like isis that took uh, gratuitous violence put it on television in ways that they were they're trying to shock people oh videotaping crucifixions videotaping beheadings and things so isis took it to a whole nother step i think taking a step back to afghanistan's taliban again in the 1990s when they started to take over large parts of afghanistan they looked at the at at 
literal texts and their understandings of those early centuries of kind of harsh frontier justice in Islam. And they said, okay, we are going to cut off a hand for stealing. We are going to make women be covered with the, the burqa from head to foot. We are going to impose these, the laws and the regulations as we understand them from that time back in that time period. And it was a very, very, very severe form of their understanding of justice. Brutal. So as the Afghanis are facing the Taliban retaking over their country, it's not just the religious minorities who are afraid, but anyone who has been living in a more in a more Western, Occidental way, correct? That is correct. The An average citizen, including many families, I think, who would be involved with the Taliban and who would think that they're theologically right. Nonetheless, most people want basic security in their community. They want basic services, and they want to be able to live their lives as they understand it under, under the dictates of their faith. And millions and millions of Afghans have been able to do that in a more modernized construct that that faces westward. And the Taliban, at least for women and at least for minorities and for some youth, uh, for people with questions or doubts uh, in their faith, there's tens of millions of Afghans who they look at the Taliban and say, they represent things that put make me a second-class citizen, that don't respect my rights under the law. I'm not seen as an equal citizen to them. I'm seen as some sort of second-class or third-class citizen. And so all of those people right now are wondering, what is my future? I know what the Taliban used to be like. I know what it's like in the villages that they've controlled that have been heavy-handed. What does the future look like? And it does not look good. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're really happy to have Eric Patterson. He's the vice president of the Religious Freedom Institute to give us some important background and information on on issues of religious freedom in in Afghanistan, the crisis that is unfolding as we speak. Eric, I read that when the Taliban moved into Kabul, one of the first things they did was to paint out ads for women's beauty products, for instance. And I'm I'm trying to picture them, but I imagine it's the kind of thing we have here. No, a woman pouting with her lipstick, maybe. I was also, I was thinking about that and how they're going to to reject anything that the that the West has been trying to to convince Afghanis that is positive about our culture. And I was thinking of another image. Just last June, the American embassy in Afghanistan put up a gay pride flag. I was wondering what you think about so many years spent in Afghanistan. Have we been able to have we been able to work with them as far as, as helping them understand religious liberty and religious and how, how it benefits everyone from that sort of that Judeo-Christian perspective that we bring to the issue? Well, that's a loaded set of questions in terms of just how much significance there is. I, w- I would say this. First of all, one element of practical religious liberty is demonstrating restraint respect for the religious values of those even who you disagree with. And what what has happened with the State Department over the last couple of years is really, it's as if we've wanted to jam our finger into the eye of more conservative societies exactly. by flying yes. these big rainbow flags. Mm-hmm. And it's it's offensive. It's clearly offensive to the, to the majority of the sentiments of the majority of people in those countries, or we try to dictate to them changes to their law and their society that are part of the authentic, lived religion that's been there for a long period of time. Now, it's one thing to to meet with them and to try to convince them if we have a strong moral position on something, but it's another thing to put up a, a symbol, which is like a slap in the face. It, it's a, it's That's not diplomacy. Mm-hmm. That's some sort of virtue signaling. And so it's been very disappointing to see the United States behave in that way in the last couple of years at various embassies, literally around the world, but particularly in more cons- uh, theologically conservative societies. And what it does is, frankly, it totally erodes the ground that we have to have a very sig- sincere, a significant adult conversation, perhaps on those issues, with another country if we're just going to slap them in the face to have a, a, a photo, a press release to give to a domestic constituency in the United States. So we, we didn't behave very responsibly when we did that. Yeah, I've, you know, thank you for, for expressing that so well. It's it's what I felt when I saw those those photos. And I've, and I've seen the photos resurface now with what's going on in Afghanistan. And, and it does seem to me a huge lack of respect. Um, and I wonder if that is is uh, 
it makes more it's even worse now when when you see the lack of respect of the way that we've pulled out of the country and left so many people in danger a big part of diplomacy is having a sense of uh, respect for the other there's a relational diplomacy aspect and another is that you yourself or that your country stands for something mm -hmm. and i think that what has been very difficult for the people on the ground to understand is is a sense of america had a, a, a huge commitment america did spend all this money and but it looks to them as if we abandoned our friends very very quickly and we're only out to save our own necks and what was very telling to me as you know yesterday president biden kind of came out of his retreat at camp david where he's been for days without saying anything about what was going on in afghanistan he came out yesterday and he gave a speech which i think had actually had many realistic and good points in it but what struck me was is that the president did not say something directly to the Taliban. He did not say something like this. And I'm telling you that if a threat ever comes out of there again, directed at the United States, we're going to bring the fire or, you know, something like that. A, mm -hmm. a very, very strong statement about the national security interests of the United States. And second, he didn't say something to them about the human rights and ideals, including about religious freedom, something like, we're not just going to be watching you, which he said on human rights, but we will take every step to isolate you to cut off your economic power your trade if you do not treat your fellow citizens right under the rule of law there, there was none of that type of language it, it was a bit disappointing and i think it sent a signal to the to the average afghans you are on your own Oh, that's a very sad statement. You're on your own. Well, I'm, the, the images coming out of Afghanistan are devastating to watch. The people clinging to the jet planes as they take off and falling from the sky. I mean, I've hardly ever seen anything so tragic as that desperation. Yeah, yeah I would agree with you. And I think our the, the sh kind of the shred of hope is the Afghan Taliban, not the Pakistani Taliban, but the Afghan Taliban, those people, many of them have a have their their own kind of religiously informed and historically and culturally formed as as, as Pashtuns love of their place and perhaps many of them will uh, this is a hope i mean i think we're all reeling because we know how bad the taliban was before and all the terrible behavior i think that there's our our, our only hope at this point in time is is that out of both pragmatism and 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 wanting to have as much stability as they can going forward and to be quickly accepted and not have a civil war that they'll behave well mm -hmm. towards their own people that's probably the best hope that we can have. Well, we, that's definitely something we can pray for, for them. Do you think uh, uh, a new migrant crisis is, is in the offing? Do you think there's going to be, there are going to be lots of Afghanis heading for the borders and many of those religious uh, minorities included? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we will see a migration crisis if people can get out. The difference between, say, the failed Obama strategy towards Libya, which resulted in the downfall of that country, or the Iraq-Syria situation, the difference in each of those cases is that the, it, it was actually quite, or, or it, it was quite easy for people to either get in a boat or to walk to to the to the borders of Europe. Afghanistan is landlocked. Mm -hmm. It's in an inhospitable place. Uh, there's already over 2.5 million refugees, as I understand it, in Pakistan. They've been in the camps for decades in some cases. There's over a million refugees, if I understand right, in Iran. Uh, th those are the places to go. I, I, I think we're going to see hundreds of thousands, if not millions, walk. But there's there's not an easy access point to get someplace else. Another thing I've read that has worried me, and this is also, this also has a religious freedom component. Every time we talk about China, we have to think mm. about that. Is that China is uh, is eyeing Afghanistan as a as a way to increase its domination? No, of that of that region. It's it's just waiting its chance to move in there and make um, make common cause with the Taliban. Do you think that's a, a possibility? And and what can the United States, if anything, do about that and its religious liberty implications? Yeah, I do think that that's quite that's quite clear. The Chinese have been buying up mineral rights in Afghanistan for some time, and I think that one of the reasons that the Taliban is quite emboldened right now is because what we didn't realize, although we should have, it's this would be a true intel failure, is is that the Taliban has been cutting side deals with China, with Russia, and with others to prepare them for this moment. Today, the, the Russian embassy did not flee Kabul. They all are at work today. And the Russian ambassador met with senior Taliban leaders earlier today, and they issued a joint statement. 
it's there's a good relationship between Moscow and the Taliban, Amazing. and we accept the situation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> they had a, a they just had a. a a major delegation meeting with the Chinese, I think actually in China. So the, the, the Taliban has been playing a very smart, sophisticated game, both in the negotiations that they had with us in Doha over the last three years, as well as meeting with going to foreign countries. And in, in other words, saying it's just a matter of time. And when we take over, we're guaranteeing you can have this mineral access, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that that has been going on. And I'm speaking just from the news and you know, from what I'm picking up in the news that has put the Taliban in the position to be ready to kind of keep the economy going, allow access to the mining, et cetera, and not be so worried about what people in the West think. We're talking to our good friend, Eric Patterson, Vice President of the Religious Freedom Institute. Eric, thank you so much for catching us up on all that on Afghanistan and, and really telling us so much information that's new to me and, and filling in all the background um, so that I can better understand the images that I'm seeing, which again are so shocking. Um, but Eric, what else at the Religious Freedom Institute are you keeping your eye on these days besides the, um, the, the Middle East or other places in the Middle East, I should say? Well, first, let me just uh, thank you again for having me and note that one of the things that's so worrying about the Russia, China, Afghanistan, et cetera, is you see a set of countries developing mm -hmm. who are bad on religious freedom at home yes. and kind of creating a, a secondary universe within international life of authoritarian regimes who scratch each other's backs, engage in trade, etc., um, outside of the existing structures of law, diplomacy, and human rights. And Russia, China, mineral rights from Afghanistan, other places, as they do that, it uh, what it does is it erodes international norms, especially on religious freedom. Mm -hmm. Now, other places that we're watching right now include Nigeria, where there's the ongoing violence in the north with Boko Haram and Islamic State, as well as which is Muslim on Muslim mainly, but also Muslim on Christian. And then in the middle belt of the country, where, where, where more Christians were killed than anywhere else in the world last year, over 4,000 at the hands of, of so-called Fulani tribesmen. But really, it's religious difference that is the identity marker where they kill Christians, pastors, seminarians, and the like. So Nigeria, second place that we're watching right now, of course, is China itself and its treatment of its Uyghur minority, but also its treatment of Christians and other religious minorities. That's a place where, according to various statistics in the Australian government, there's well over 300 of these concentration camps where mm -hmm. the Uyghurs are quartered. So and of hard. course, we know it's systematic rape, it's systematic enslavement, organ harvesting, the whole thing. Uh, there's two, those are two of the worst stories. And I'd say one last one is simply this. COVID-19 is still going. Mm -hmm. And all around the world, governments have used COVID-19 as a pretext to marginalize minorities, to blame religious minorities as the carriers of this, to scapegoat them as well as to impose draconian restrictions on houses of worship. You know, Algeria closed its mosques for six months, but its churches are still closed after more than a year. And those types of restrictions all around the world, um, we're calling out every, every time we see them. Do you find that the Biden administration has, has been paying enough attention to this uh, since since January? <laughs> it's a very new administration. Uh, now the world seems to be burning up, but um, do you think they were on a good track? Well, it's a good news, bad news story with the Biden administration. Um, they've seemed to be much more interested in uh, in imposing kind of a, a LGBTQ orthodoxy in foreign policy, including in dozens of executive orders and things, including National Security Directive Number 4. One of the earliest things from the Biden administration under the guise of national security was to promote LGBTQ agenda items in our foreign policy. The, as we talked about earlier, that's a slap in the face mm -hmm. to many yes. other societies. The, the other bad news is right at the beginning of this administration, they said, well, we repudiate uh, Secretary Mike Pompeo, 
this notion that America's founded on a sense of unalienable rights, which our founding documents talk about, and they got rid of a commission and a report on unalienable rights and the, and the idea that there are some basic, basic, fundamental individual rights that are part of the American tradition and that are universal. By th- what Instead, what the new Secretary of State has said is there's no hierarchy of rights. What that really means is, is that every single right that anyone could claim or any group could claim is just as valid as any other right. And of course, that's that's not really true. There are some fundamental intrinsic rights natural to the human experience. And at the root of them, the right to survive, including spiritually with religious freedom, is there are fundamental rights. Um, the loss of that means that there's not really a great North Star, a moral North Star on, on how to think about religion, morality, ethics for this administration. That's very worrying for our foreign policy. It also seems schizophrenic because at the same time, they are very insistent that the LGBTQ agenda is an absolute necessity for every culture, regardless of how that culture understands itself sexually. Yes, that that is correct. And there is a, a new individualistic neo-orthodoxy that says, I myself get to choose my reality and I get to express it and I can tell you what my reality is and you have to affirm that. Now, that's the opposite yes. of actually religious faith. Oh, yeah, which and, of has solid, a, and of solid ideas about inalienable rights that can't be shifted, right? According to your own personal uh, ideas. That's right, because as we as Christians believe, first of all, that there's an objective truth that's outside of ourselves that's God-created and God-ordained. And second, that there's a, a moral fabric that God has ordained that we can choose to accept or reject, but that we can't pretend is not there. And so that type of authority outside of ourselves rubs that radical individualist totally the wrong way. And of course, as a Christian, I believe that that is sin. Eric, what a wonderful discussion. I can't thank you enough and I can't believe we're out of time. I wish we could keep talking. Maybe we could have you back on and we could we could deepen on that line, which which I love. I think the philosophy behind things is, is just as important as the things themselves and maybe more. Where can That's our listeners pleasure, where can our listeners uh, learn more about your wonderful work at the Religious Freedom Institute? Thanks. They can look us up at religiousfreedominstitute.org. We also are on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter. And again, it's religiousfreedominstitute.org. Well, thank you, Eric. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and now we have Dr. Scott Hahn with us. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hahn. It's great to be with you. You know, I'm always so excited when you're on the show because I have so many friends and acquaintances who really have benefited tremendously from your books, from your, from all the things that you do. You've had a tremendous impact in their lives, their spiritual lives. You've brought them close to the church. You've helped their families by the wonderful way that you explain things. Um, in ways that reach people's hearts. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Thanks be to God. I can even think, I can think of a bunch of people. You're definitely like a lodestar for them because you, you have been able to, to penetrate um, into their hearts and minds where other things have not. And what, what do you attribute that to, Dr. Han? I would say it's mostly because of how God our Father has penetrated me with His Word, the sacred scriptures especially, but also as they point to Jesus Christ and as I discovered him 35 years ago in the Holy Eucharist when I became a Catholic. You know, I I was studying scripture for many years and then I was called upon to teach it as a professor and as a pastor. And I remember finding in the early church fathers a way of understanding the word of God that penetrated my heart, not just my head. And it was so different than what I had studied and what I read in other books. And so I was trying to figure out exactly what it was that was different. And as I began to teach scripture over the years, people would come to me and say, wow, I've never heard it taught that way before. I went to Catholic school. I went to seminary. And I'm like, I know what you mean. I didn't go to Catholic school, but I went to seminary. And it was only in reading the early church fathers that I figured out that the New Testament needs to be read in terms of the old. And the old is a story in search of an ending. And the fulfillment is the new. 
and the new is almost unintelligible apart from the old. And so over the years, you know, it's sort of like two different ways of approaching the same thing. You can approach your, you know, you can approach your bride in terms of studying her x-rays, or you can approach your bride and ask her out on a date, you know, uh, like I do with Kimberly. Tomorrow's our anniversary. Likewise, you know, you could look at stained glass windows from the sidewalk and they're going to look dull and drab, or you can go inside and see the light streaming through them and recognize the beauty of the colors. Well, scripture is that way. And so for years, I've focused most of my books on explaining how to understand scripture and how to read it from the heart of the church, from within this perspective of faith. And that's what's so life transforming to me. And so I'm not surprised that it's life transforming to other people. But as you asked, you know, so often you get this question, well, why did I not read it that way? Why did I not get taught it that way? And so that's why in the last 10 years, I've been really also shifting my focus in order to show people how the Bible became a secular book for many, many people for the last several centuries. And so, you know, my most recent book, uh, in fact, is The Decline and Fall of Sacred Scripture, or how the Bible became a secular book, how it became desupernaturalized, and how it was reduced to the merely human, not the divine, to the historical past and not to the present, and to academic hypotheses apart from the certainty of faith that it's meant for. And so when you begin to shift from one to the other, you begin to recognize, wow, this is what St. Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians, that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. If you reduce your wife to her x-rays or you know to her bank account or whatever, your love is going to die. And so Paul was warning against the reduction of the word of God to the merely human, where you end up not recognizing the divine, the supernatural, the miraculous, and the element of prophecy. And I mean, in some ways, when you set it forth this way, that contrast makes it so clear and obvious. But when you find scripture being taught in high schools, in colleges, in universities, as well as seminaries, you're going to find that, okay, it really is a mixed matter, you know. And so I would say that the more people recognize, ah, that when you read Scripture from the heart of the church, when you see it pointing us to Christ in the Eucharist, then likewise the Holy Eucharist is going to fulfill what it is you're studying. Then and only then are you going to really find its true meaning. And I think a lot of people who have never learned it that way are sincerely convinced that they can teach it in strictly naturalistic terms of apart from the supernatural, but that's like a tone-deaf music critic claiming to be more objective when he's criticizing the symphony, or some art analyst who is colorblind and says, well, I'm going to be more neutral and objective in assessing this art than people who have all the spectrum. You know, it's like you scratch your head and you say, no, of course not. Only in the area of the faith would we fall for such a thing. You know, when in fact, you're really not only finding a way of studying the Bible, Bible that is more spiritually satisfying, but at the end of the day, it's also scientifically superior because you're reading this ancient document on its own terms. That is, you're reading it from the perspective of the faith that is shared by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as Paul and all of the other writers of Scripture. I, I didn't mean to go so long, but I tell you, <laughs> I haven't been out of the classroom for three months, and so I feel like it's backed up now. Well, we're very <laughs> fortunate to have the benefit of that. Dr. Han, let me give you an example, Dr. Han, and you tell me sure. if this is uh, what, what you're trying to express or what your book expresses. This is from my own personal experience. I've been, uh, I go to daily mass and, and I have been uh, for a long time. And I sometimes hear a, a homily in which we do the loaves of, and the fishes, the wonderful, beautiful story of God feeding the multitudes, of Jesus feeding the multitudes. And I have heard from the pulpit it being reduced to a metaphor of, uh, of sharing that there weren't really three loaves and two fishes but everybody put in their little bit in a basket and it's all about how people share or maybe it was um, a psychological understanding of fullness that even though there was very little food people felt replete because they were in the presence of, of the generous God. Gracie that might be the most common example that I've heard from others and that I have also heard myself and so 
on the one hand, you could say, well, you know, that reflects a prejudice against the miraculous. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you could say, strictly in literary and scientific terms, Father, is that what the text says? In other words, when you are reading John 6 and you're hearing about the five loaves, the two fish, the feeding of the 5,000, and the filling of 12 baskets of leftovers, uh, is the author's original intention meant to communicate the generosity of the people who ended up sharing the bread that they were hiding? Or does the author intend for his readers to recognize a miracle? Because ultimately, what is biblical interpretation? The exegesis of scripture is to look at the meaning of the words and to ascertain their objective sense in terms of what the author intended. And even apart from the Holy Spirit being the principal author, in this case, St. John, the fourth evangelist, is hardly intending to communicate the old children's story of stone soup mm-hmm. where stone soup, you, get sure. them, you get them to share when they were reluctant to do so. You know, and so you scratch your head and say, this is not only spiritually barren, but it's scientifically inept because it isn't interpreting the sense of the text. And so again, I emphasize the fact that this is not just reading scripture in the tradition. This is also reading the scriptures in an authentically critical way. So we're not saying let's be uncritical or let's go back to the pre-critical. It's really what Cardinal Ratzinger said back in 88 when he came to New York City and said, it's time for us to recognize how the historical critics have been hypercritical and critical of everything except the limitations of the critical methods. Mm -hmm. So let's also apply criticism to the critics and their misuse of criticism. And this book, The Decline and Fall of Sacred Scripture, or How the Bible Became a Secular Book, that I co author of my good friend, Dr. Ben Weicker, is actually a condensation of a, a much longer book. <laughs> we came out eight years ago with a 600-pound gorilla. I mean, <laughs> this book was called, that book was called Politicizing the Bible, The Roots of Historical Criticism and the Secularization of Scripture from 1300 to 1700. And it was so favorably reviewed by academics and scholars around the world that people began to ask us to summarize to simplify, to give us a kind of abridged version so that ordinary Catholics could see how philosophically and theologically and also politically and scientifically the Bible had been hijacked and really made to say things that it never said, almost like a ventriloquist would take a dummy and act as though, you know, he's throwing his voice into the into the dummy. And scripture has become the dummy for a secular ventriloquism for many, many years. Years, and not just our century, but going back four, five, six, seven, or eight hundred years. And this is what needs to be done again to apply criticism to the critics to show how uncritical they've been in really mangling the meaning of sacred scripture. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm talking to the famous Dr. Scott Hahn. Dr. Hahn, was is the did Delt was all of this uh, secularization of the scripture, I wondered, was it, um, did it start or was it put on steroids with the Protestant Reformation in the sense that the Protestants, they decided the, there should be no mediating influences between a, pa- a man and his Bible, that the man should make up his own mind as he reads it? Well, in a way, it does start there. In another way, it starts long before it. And that's why in our book, Luther and the Reformation is really chapter four, whereas in chapter Chapters one, two, and three, we're looking at Marsilius of Padua and William of Ockham. Mm-hmm. You know, and Ockham was a Franciscan. He was excommunicated, but he was he was basically weaponizing scripture to empower the secular authorities over the Pope, over the bishops. And he knew what he was doing. And we also find in John Wycliffe, uh, the century before the Reformation, he's often described as a, a forerunner of the Reformation. And he was also mis- misreading the Bible on philosophical and especially political terms. At the end of the day, what I would have to say is this. When Luther described himself as an Occamist, he was saying that if you read Scripture through the lens of William of Occam, it's going to lead to sola scriptura, but it's going to also lead to a number of the other errors of the Reformation. If you had someone who was really well-trained philosophically and historically, they could pick up the Bible and apart from the tradition, avoid the errors of Luther. 
And so, you know, there's no evidence that Luther was even given a single page of St. Thomas Aquinas ever to read in his formation and preparation to become a priest and a monk and a scholar. And so bad philosophy has a, a way of distorting our understanding of reality and also distorting our understanding of scripture. And so I don't want to pin the tail on Luther. I would say Luther was actually pointing to the source of the problem, which came 200 years before him with William of Ockham, of Marsilius of Padua, and especially especially Niccolo Machiavelli, the great Renaissance historian who was deliberate and very explicit about secularizing politics and reducing power or reducing all claims to truth to power. And you know what I, I think what we'll find is uh, when we study the historical background, we're going to say, wow, if Luther hadn't existed, somebody would have invented him because those philosophical errors that preceded Martin Luther are bound to have consequences. And it just so happened to fall upon the shoulders of Martin Luther to display them, to manifest the the catastrophic results of bad philosophy and bad reading of scripture. You know, at the end of the day, you know, treasury agents who are taught to detect counterfeit currency are taught to do so by handling real money. Because when you handle real bills, you're going to easily detect the counterfeit. And so the best way to go about this is to read scripture from the heart of the church. That's what our St. Paul Center has been started for. We're celebrating 20th, uh, our 20th anniversary. But the, this idea of imparting biblical literacy to lay people, biblical fluency for our clergy, and especially training up our priests so that they can read scripture from the heart of the church and cause people to say, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened up the scriptures? And that's what we're experiencing more and more. But at the end of the day, you also have to show where the counterfeit comes from. And that's the purpose of this little book, our most recent, The Decline and Fall of Sacred Scripture, or How the Bible Became a Secular Book. So let me see if I understand. The, um, the Bible became a secular book through, uh, num- in one sense, from the rejection of the idea of the supernatural, correct? So we, right. in one way, we read it, we want to read it as a, as, as a set of psychological statements or, or political statements or um, ideological statements. And we want to remove all the, all the very, um, all the very well explained um, miracles that are not, they're not told to us as psychological um, episodes, but as real episodes. Exactly. That's okay. right. That's one way. Another way is um, as a historical book, right? This is a, it's a story of, of certain things that happened that, um, are, that we can read that way as, as a fable or a historical fable or a historical myth that tells us something about the people who are writing it, but nothing about what really happened. Am I correct right. in that? Exactly. I mean, when you look at the word incarnate in Jesus Christ, his human nature does not in any way exclude his divinity. That is the miracle of the incarnation, that he is fully divine as well as fully human. That means he's fully historical in the past, but he's also fully present in the Eucharist. And so it's it's always the case that a Catholic would say it's never either or, it's both and. So it's human and it's divine. It is historical, yet it's also prophecy. And so when we recognize the need to apply a critical method, yes, and at the same time, we apply a hermeneutic of faith so that we're reading this ancient text on its own terms with a critical sympathy for what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are writing, because they're not only literary artists, they're not only reliable historical witnesses, they're mystics, they're men of prayer, they're theologians, especially St. John, the fourth evangelist. And so to read them apart from theology, to read them apart from faith, to read them apart from the sacraments, it's like you know a botanist who claims to be more objective because he's ripping plants out of the forest, bringing them into the lab, putting them under hot, bright lights, and then asking, why are they wilting? Why are they dying? <laughs> well, that's what happens when you take an organism out of its natural habitat. And when you take sacred scripture out of this sacramental habitat for which it was written, in which it's meant to be read, and by which it's meant to be fulfilled in every Eucharist, it's going to wilt. It's going to die. It's going to produce 40,000 plus 
Protestant denominations, all of which are founded by men and women who sincerely believe that they're interpreting the Bible better than the people who came before them. But you can be totally sincere and still be sincerely wrong. And I think that's what I discovered after years of study as a Protestant pastor. Well, I'm going to be reading your book, The Decline and Fall of Sacred Scripture, How the Bible Became a Secular Book. It sounds fascinating, especially the way that you you explain the philosophy that starts way before Luther. Um, right. I think that I'm really it's looking forward to that. It's a breakthrough for me and for others, too. I really feel like oftentimes we just trace it back to the Reformation, when in fact Luther was pointing us to the fact that it was not Aquinas, it was Occam. It was not mm -hmm. good, solid philosophy. It was a kind of philosophy that reduces truth down to power. I wanted to know if you could tell us about your the St. Paul Institute. Yeah, the St. Paul Center, as I said, was founded 20 years ago to teach Catholics to read scripture from the heart of the church. The thing that I've been focusing on the most lately, since 05, in fact, is holding retreats and conferences for priests. Each time we find literally hundreds of priests saying, how come I never learned to read the Bible this way? No wonder when I preach it, it doesn't come to life. And so, you know, I had one priest stop me as he was leaving and saying, I've been a priest for 37 years. I went to 36 retreats before this one. This one was better than the other 36 put together. And it's come at a perfect time. And at breakfast, I discovered I'm not alone. Every other one of my brother priests were feeling the same way. That sounds wonderful. So thank you so much, Dr. Hahn, for being with us today. It's a, a, a real pleasure and a real honor to have you. Dr. Christie, it's been, a it's been a privilege for me, a true honor. Thank you for your hospitality. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a real privilege for me to be with you. As we enter into the finale of the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus has been having with us over the course of this last month, with regard to what is the most important reality in the entire world, His own presence in the Holy Eucharist, and what our reaction is to that reality. After several weeks of describing that his flesh is real food and his blood real drink, after encouraging us to work not for perishable food, but for the food that endures to eternal life, after describing that this divine gift is far greater and more important for our survival than the manna God used to rain down each day for the Israelites in the desert, we come to the climax, which is just as personal for us as it was for his first listeners. The climax is the choice he wants us to make, the commitment he wants us to give in response to this great divine gift, which is not just to believe his words that he is the true manna, that his body is real food and his blood real drink, and that whoever gnaws on his flesh and drinks his blood as eternal life will be raised in the last day, but to structure our life in accordance with that belief. Jesus is asking us to live a truly Eucharistic life, drawing our life from him in this supreme gift. He's asking us to make him the source and summit of our existence, to choose him who has chosen us, to commit to him who has made the ultimate commitment to us, to be as faithful to him as he is faithful to us in the new and eternal covenant sealed in his body and blood. But that's not easy. The gospel, we read that many of Jesus' disciples who had heard his words said, this teaching is difficult, who can accept it? The disciples weren't strangers to Jesus. There were people who had been amazed and astonished by his teaching over the previous two years, who had heard him preach like no one had ever preached before. These were people who had witnessed him make blind men see, deaf men hear, cripples walk, lepers restored to the skin of babies, and possessed people exercised and liberated. These were people who the previous day had just seen Jesus feed a crowd of 5,000 men, 5,000 women, probably 15,000 kids on the starting material of five buns and two sardines. They were the ones now saying that Jesus was asking too much for them to stomach. We have to admit that they were right about Jesus' teachings being hard. At first glance, they're disgusting. To eat someone's flesh and drink his blood smacks of cannibalism. 
Moreover, for a Jew who couldn't even touch blood without becoming ritually impure, Jesus was saying that they needed to drink blood, something that seemed straight out of a 20th century sick vampire novel. Even 2,000 years after the Last Supper, when Jesus would show how he would fulfill these words, by totally changing bread and wine into his body, blood, soul, and divinity, this teaching is still hard. It's hard to believe that the creator of the whole world, the miraculous carpenter from Nazareth, is actually hidden under the appearance of simple human food on the altar. That the Eucharist is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. That the Eucharist is not bread or wine, but God. Jesus' teaching is hard. But that shouldn't surprise us. Jesus never pretended his teachings were easy. When he talked about forgiving 70 times, 7 times, when he spoke about cutting off hands or plucking out eyes if they lead us to sin, when he discussed turning the other cheek, denying ourselves, picking up our cross and following him, when he described losing our life in order to save it, when he conversed about loving him more than we love father and mother, brother, sister, child, work, or property, when he remarked about loving others just as he loved us by sacrificing our life for them, all of this is hard. But with regard to disciples, second question, who can accept it? Jesus' answer is one with faith in Jesus. That's what we see in Peter's response when, after Jesus watched, most of his disciples abandoned him because they didn't want to accept his teaching. And he turned to the twelve apostles and asked poignantly, Do you also want to leave? Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. The teaching wasn't any easier for Peter than for the thousands of disciples who had just abandoned Jesus. It would only become fathomable a year later during the next Passover, when Jesus would take bread and wine into his hands and totally change them into himself and say, This is my body, take and eat, and this is the chalice of my blood, take and drink. But Peter knew that Jesus had the words of eternal life. So because of faith in Jesus, he put his faith in what Jesus was saying. Likewise, we need to have faith in Jesus' words. The great Eucharistic hymn, St. Thomas Aquinas' Adoro Te Devote, we sing, I believe whatever the Son of God has said, nothing is truer than the word of truth. We believe in Jesus' difficult teaching on the Eucharist precisely because we believe in Jesus. And believing in Jesus means basing our entire existence on what Jesus reveals. So the choice comes to us this Sunday, a choice we can't duck because to try to duck the choice is to choose to deny the Lord. Over the course of the last month, Jesus prepared, been preparing us for this moment. He multiplied the loaves and fish not only to show his compassion and power, but to foretell what he has been planning to do with the multiplication of the Eucharist. He told us to labor for this food more than the hardest working parents strive to put food on the table. He told us that he was the true manna that the Father wants to give us to sustain us in the desert of human life. The answer to the prayer he put on our lips, give us today our super substantial bread, and sir, give us this bread always. Jesus answers that prayer for us every day, but now we have to respond to his personal gift. Jesus wants us to draw our life from him, to live a Eucharistic life, to experience a spousal union with him consummated in the one flesh loving communion that happens in the marriage bed of the altar, when we, as the bride of Christ, take within the body of the bridegroom, become one flesh with him, and are capacitated to bear fruit, to make love with him in all our actions. Are we ready to make that commitment? At the end of this five-week course, Jesus asks each of us, do you also want to leave? He asks whether we want to live united to him in the Holy Eucharist or live in some other way. He asks whether we will make him in the Eucharist the source and the summit of our life, or whether we'll just try to keep him in the Eucharist as part of our life, and a small part at that, something we do out of duty for an hour or so on Sunday. The response Jesus is hoping is for us to echo St. Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and are convinced you are the Holy One of God. Peter, James, John, Andrew, and the other disciples except Judas had truly left everything to live with Jesus. They spent every day with Jesus who taught them, nourished them, and who prepared them to take not just his gospel, but his very presence in the Eucharist to the ends of the earth. Unlike them, we don't have to leave our fishing boats, tax tables, homes, and families in order to be with Jesus. He comes to our parish churches every day. The question for us is whether we really want to be with him or whether we want to leave him alone. And if we do want to be with him, that will change not only the way we look at Sunday Mass, but also the way we look at the awesome privilege of daily Mass and the way we approach Eucharistic adoration. 
If the Eucharist really is Jesus, and we believe this truth and love the Lord Jesus, then we will soon recognize that there's nothing more we want to do than come to receive him as well, as well as as often as we can. If the Eucharist really is Jesus and we believe this truth and love Jesus, then we will soon reprioritize everything so that we can come to spend more and more time with him and bring our family members and friends to experience this same treasure. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 